Good morning, everybody. Um, it's not as thin as I was afraid it was going to be. There's so many families out, I was like, I'm going to stand up and it's going to be me talking to myself. But So thank you for coming. <laughs> uh, we want to invite our children to Children's Church. Our children's, I keep doing that. Um, and as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer uh, before we turn to the word. Uh, Lord, um, we just pray for all of our families who are traveling right now, uh, that you would be with them, uh, give them uh, safe journeys, bring them back to us safely as well. Um, and Lord, I pray just for the summer season, because this happens a lot, and people are traveling quite a bit. Um, Lord, would you uh, please protect our folks, and, and wherever they go, would you go with them? And Lord, I want to pray for the upcoming uh, Evangelical Free Church of America National Conference this next week. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, fill us with a sense of unity, uh, give us a sense of purpose. And uh, Lord, above all, I pray that all the people who are involved, all the delegates, all the speakers, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on Christ. And so be with us as we make some big, important decisions this coming week. And uh, Lord, would you continue to, to guide and guard your church? Um, now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would help us. Um, this is a big section. There's a, a lot said here. Um, Paul's most important message, and so we want to treat it well. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you be with us uh, to help us to hear and to say your words accurately? And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So where we're at really, in my mind, is the pinnacle of the book of Acts. This is it. This is where everything has been leading to, and what comes after this is kind of the conclusion. It wraps up the story. It takes us to the end of Paul's story, which will just be sitting in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, the fancy term for that, the literary term, is a denouement, if you want to sound really snotty. Uh, denouement is just kind of after the third act, the last little wrapping up of the loose bits. So this is the pinnacle. This is the peak. This is what uh, Acts has been leading to. And remember, I've said over the last two weeks, we keep seeing the setup for this. So when we get here, there's a lot of stuff that has been repeated that we've already covered. We've talked about it a few times, and now here it is in this massive crescendo. It's Paul's defense, and really it ties a lot of the things that we've been hearing about throughout the entire book of Acts together. So just to, to I want to set the scene again. You remember last week we, we did the setup to the trial where um, where Festus had called everybody together and then summoned Paul in. And if you remember, what we saw was Agrippa, um, an important and a powerful king. He was a friend of Caesar's. Caesar himself had appointed Agrippa there. So Agrippa comes in, and, and uh, Luke tells us this with great pomp. He is decked out in all of his ro royal robes. He's got the purple. He's got the golden crown on his head. He proceeds in. He's got attendants. He's got all of these things going on. And right next to him is his sister Bernice. And she didn't come in in, in in street clothes. She came in with the finest. She came in looking like a significant person. And you remember the story, Bernice, she was no lightweight. She was going to wind up almost marrying Titus. But because of the anti-Semitism in Rome, she couldn't and had to be put away so he could become the emperor. He could become the next Caesar. So she's no political lightweight either. These are two extraordinarily important people. And as they're proceeding in, as they're entering the hall, standing at the front is Festus, the governor of all of Judea, a high Roman official, probably wearing white because he doesn't get his hands dirty. He has people for that. And he's got attendants around him, and he's, he's standing to receive the king. This is an important person who receives a king. And lining the halls, then, are the military uh, uh, leaders. The, they're called the tribunes. They're the chiliarchs, the, the leaders of a thousand. And there's at least five of them standing around, and they're in their best military garb, their, their uniform of the day, their dress uniform, polished and shiny, standing with all the, the display of Rome's power. This is Rome's power, is the might of their army, and that's what they're standing there to, to show and to display. And then the lining room were the important men of the city. These would have been the rich, the powerful. You want anything done in Caesarea Philippi? You're going to talk to these, or Caesarea, you talk to these folks. You don't do anything here without speaking to them. And so this is the assembly. This is the hall. And walking into it is this strange little man, probably in, in nothing fancy, and he comes in in chains. This is Paul, and this is what he's facing. Now, we got to remember, this is not a trial. 
Paul has repeatedly been pronounced innocent over and over and over again. Remember how this got called? Why, does, why all the pomp? Why all the, the ceremony? Why all the high muckety-mucks present? Because Festus said, Paul has appealed to Caesar, and I have nothing to write down. So Agrippa, you understand Judaism. You're really into the Jewish thing. Would you come and explain to me what he's doing so that I have something to write to Caesar? That's the point of this. He's not on trial. He is simply here to offer his explanation of what's going on. Why did he appeal to Caesar so that Festus has something to write to send with him? And, and that's the picture. But what we're going to see is even though Paul is not on trial, somebody is. And I won't reveal that. That's the mystery. This is how I'm going to keep you awake, is I won't tell you until we get there. But there is a trial. And so let's, let's see what happens. So how does it begin? Agrippa says, you have permission to speak for yourself. In other words, you don't have to have a lawyer present. Um, you may address the royal personage personally. You may speak for yourself. Notice it's Agrippa who does this. It's not Festus. As a matter of fact, as we go through the chapter, what you'll see is it is Agrippa who is firmly in control here. It is Agrippa who Paul will address. Even when Festus interrupts, he'll address Festus in a respectful term and then turn back to the king to say, King, you understand this. So it is Agrippa who is running this show. That's why he tells Paul, you may speak. And so Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now, it wasn't like Paul was stretching out his hand, remember a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago, when he was arrested and he was on the, the steps at the temple and being led into the barracks, he waved his hand to try to get the crowd to shut up, let me speak. And the crowd finally settled down and he could address them. That's not what's happening here. This is, this is the act of an orator. He's about to give his oration. He is about to give his professional defense. So he motions with his hand and he begins to speak. And this is his first, he starts with a formal address with respect, remember when, when we talked about this earlier, when Paul came in, he didn't show any disrespect for the court, even though he knew he was innocent. He started with respect, and that's how he begins here with Agrippa. He says, I consider myself fortunate that's you, King Agrippa, I'm going to give my defense to today against all these accusations of the Jews. You are the perfect person to hear this, King Agrippa. Now, I think that's a double-sided statement. Because Agrippa was, remember we said last week, he was kind of recognized amongst the Romans as this is the expert on the Jews. We don't get him, but Agrippa does. And he's one of us because he grew up in, in Rome, but he really is the expert. So Paul, in one way, is saying, Agrippa, Agrippa, I am so glad it's you that get to hear this because you'll understand the minutia of the details of this stuff. But I think there's another part to it, too. Agrippa, I'm glad it's you. I want you to hear what I have to say. This is important for you to catch. Remember what, what was said from the very beginning. Paul was told, you're going to go before kings. It's happening. So Paul saying, Agrippa, I am so glad it's you that get to hear me. You are the king that needs to hear this message. That's kind of that, that two-edged coin to this or two-sided coin to it. Um, it's, it's good news. And so he says it's especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews, and there are lots of controversies. Therefore, please listen to me patiently. I have a lot to say. Now, what comes next is his defense. I think it's almost assuredly true that Luke had to summarize some of this. This isn't like a word-for-word -word recounting of everything that, that Paul said. It's a faithful reproduction, but it's not necessarily everything. I think there must have been more that was said that we didn't get. This is what we needed to know. What Agrippa heard was what Agrippa needed to know. Um, this is a faithful representation of it. And so this is his, his defense. He's, he starts again, just like he's done every single time so far. He starts with, this is who I was. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning amongst my own nation and in Jerusalem, my own nation. He's not saying, I am no longer a Jew. I don't have anything to do with those people. They killed Jesus. I don't want anything to do with them. He said, my own nation, these are my people. And that's something that you hear echoed like in the book of Romans. I would that I could be accursed if I could save some of my brothers. So he's looking to the Jews. He says, I still love these people. I still want them to hear. I still want them to believe. I grew up this way amongst my own nation and in Jerusalem. And it's known by all the Jews. Everybody who knows me. How was I before I met Jesus Christ? You know what I was like. 
He says, for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I was part of the most strict party of our religion. He's speaking to Agrippa and he says, I was the most strict of our religion, Agrippa, the one that we share. And, and notice he doesn't say of your religion. It's still his religion and Agrippa's religion. It's our religion. So what we're going to see as we go through this is Paul is not saying, and then I stopped being a Jew. And then I left the Jewish faith and I became a Christian. What he's saying is, this is our religion. I lived as the strictest manner of our religion. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promises made by God to our fathers. The hope of the promises. This, what he's about to do is unpack for him the hope that he has in Jesus Christ. And he says, this hope is not just came out of nowhere. Surprise, left field. This is the hope that was pronounced to our fathers. Abraham had a covenant announced to him. And it was said that one of Abraham's seed, his offspring, would be a blessing to the nations. This is in harmony with that. That's all I'm doing is I'm hoping in the promise that God made to the fathers. That's in line with our history. The other thing, and this is maybe just me, but the way I understand what a covenant is, especially a covenant that God makes, is a covenant is a promise. At its foundation, at its basis, it is simply God making a promise. And that is what a covenant is. And so when he says here that he, he um, is, got his hope in the promise made by, my, by uh, God to our fathers, what he's saying is I'm standing in line with the whole history of our covenant relationship with God from Abraham through, uh, um, through uh, Moses and David, all of the great covenants that God's made, I'm standing in that tradition. That's where I am today. This is who I am. He said, but at, back then... I was part of this strict part of our, uh, of our heritage. And I, even then I had a hope in, in the promises, but I don't think I really understood them. And he says, to which our 12 tribes, again, identifying with Herod, our, the tribes that we're part of, that they may attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for that hope, I'm on trial by the Jews, O king. So what is that hope? What is the hope that the fathers had? What is the hope the covenant promise that God had made all the way from the beginning right up to this point, the covenant promise, that hope that he made is, is answered in the very next verse. Paul says, that's who I am. That's what I'm hoping in. That's what I pin my hope on. Why is it thought incredible that by any of you that God raises the dead? Why would you think that it's weird that God raises the dead? He had promised all along from the very beginning. He said, I am going to raise the dead. This is the promise that they had. They didn't have a promise that was merely, we'll have a lot of people in a big plot of dirt in the Middle East, yay. That was where it happened. That was the plan. But the promise was, there will be resurrection. I will be your God and you will be my people and it'll last forever. That's my hope. So if that's true, if God has been saying this from the beginning, then why do people think it's incredible that God raises the dead? He always said he would. That was always the plan. But now I stand in trial because of it, because I have found this hope. Do you notice again that connection? It's not Jesus is this new thing that came in and invaded and has nothing to do with the history of the people. This is why he can continue to say our own religion is because he's saying, look, this is what has been promised all along. And now Jesus has come and I'm hoping in Jesus and that's it. And that's why I'm on trial by the Jews. So that's his hope, is, is the, the claim to the resurrection. So where he goes is he says, I myself was convinced, reminding him what his, uh, his life like was before. I myself was convinced that I had to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There was a time when I stood violently opposed to this Jesus of Nazareth. He, he was an instigator. He was a troublemaker. His followers were saying blasphemous things that I hated. And I was convinced that if I was going to be a faithful Jew, I had to persecute him to the end. I had to obliterate that message from our nation because it's utter heresy. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, those folks who are accusing me now, yeah, those ones, I had authority for them to go out and lock up the people who were doing this. So we were on the same page for a while. But when they were put to death, when the, these Christians were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
And I punished them often in the synagogue and tried to make them blaspheme. I wanted them to denounce the name. I wanted them to say that Jesus was not raised. You can't be raised. That doesn't make any sense. Confess it or you're going to jail. He tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In raging fury. This is a religious fanatic. This is, this is the definition of the religious nut job. Anybody who doesn't agree with him, he hates him and he's going to chase him down. I think that description of himself, once again, and, and if there's repetition in the sermon series, it's not my fault. It's what Luke is doing in the Bible. This once again proves if anybody should never have converted to, uh, to Christianity, it was Paul. If, if Christianity, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a delusion by wishful people who really miss their Messiah or miss their master and wish he was alive, Paul is the last person in, in the world to believe it. He didn't want Jesus raised. He wanted his disciples. He's, he's dead and you're going to follow him. He wanted to wipe it out. So this is why Paul brings this up, his conversion story, over and over again. This is, I think, the third time, if I remember right, that we've heard it is because it is fantastic that he converted from that kind of opposition to what is about to happen. What would turn that kind of a person? And so here's where he goes. This last person on earth to become a Christian. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At noon, at midday, O king, I, was on my, I, I saw on my way a light from heaven. And so what he's going to do is he's going to tell us his conversion story again. And one of the things that... Um, Critics like to point out is it's different every time he tells it. Well, it, it isn't different every time he tells it. It's essentially the same story. A bright light from heaven, a voice from heaven, he's blind, he goes to Damascus. That's basically the story. So why is it that Luke doesn't just you know, use control C and then control V and tell the exact same words every single place when he's writing this? Well, when you tell a story to somebody, everybody has favorite stories, right? Um, we all have fa favorite stories that we tell over and over again. Uh, mine was when I almost crashed an F4 because I stuck a tool in a landing gear button and I shouldn't have. And I love telling that story over and over again. But I don't use exactly the same words every time. I tailor it to the people I'm talking to. Don't you have stories you do that? You have your favorite stories. Tell them that story and you, and you tailor it to who you're listening to. So what Paul is doing is he's tailoring, tailoring this story to whoever is listening. Luke told us back in chapter 9, what we needed to know about, about Paul's conversion. That was the important part. It wasn't every single detail of it. Because what we're going to find out here is that Paul is going to say, hey, there are things that Jesus said to me that, that weren't recorded back there. And they're important now, and you need to hear them. You need to understand them, because those things are going to buttress what I'm trying to accomplish in telling you my story. So don't get too worried if the, the telling of the story is not exactly the same every time. It doesn't violate... Biblical inerrancy, the Bible is still without error. There's no contradictions. It's simply a different way to tell the same story over and over again. So that's what happens. I was on my way, and a bright light shone around me. And it shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, i got to say it, there's no horse. There's no horse. <laughs> there's a famous painting where Paul has fallen to the ground off a horse. There's no horse. <laughs> he could have been walking. Um, when he would fall into the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, this is new in the Hebrew language. We didn't know what language he spoke before. Why does he mention the Hebrew language then? Why throw this little detail in? It's our people, Agrippa. It's our religion. It's our promises. It's spoken in our language. He didn't come and speak to me in Greek. He spoke to me in, in Hebrew uh, language, probably Aramaic or the, the halfway between Aramaic and, and Hebrew that they spoke of today. But that's the point. He spoke to me in, a, in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Almost exactly the same words that we've got before. There's nothing new there. But he goes on and he says, um, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is brand new. We hadn't heard this before. So what are goads? Why kick against them? What's going on there? What would happen is if you had a, a young ox that you were training to the yoke, you were going to use it in the field and, and train it, you would have to goad it. You'd have to make it get used to being in the, in the yoke and, and pulling in the right direction. So a goad might be a sharp stick that you'd poke it with. Whenever it would stop and you know, decide it was going to take a break, you'd poke it. Uh, another way that, it would, that the goad would be created is there'd be a thin piece of wood with nails driven through it. 
And so these sharp points. So if if the um, ox began to slow down or began to kick or buck, these sharp points would come in and poke it and make it hurt and it would get moving again. So that was the goad. The goad was there to keep to goad them on, right? You've heard that term, to keep that ox moving. You're supposed to be working, you keep moving. So that was the goad. So why does Jesus look to Paul and say, it's hard for you to kick against those goads? What goads? What, what was he kicking against? Well, I think there's a number of goads. And, and we all have goads that God has used to move us to faith. So personal goads might be Paul had repeatedly heard the message that Peter and John and these other disciples was preaching Stephen. He heard Stephen's message. He had heard what they had to say, and it was a goad. There was something about it that bugged him, and he didn't like it. So do you think that ox, when that goad comes swinging in and hints him on the haunches, do you think it likes that? No, that's why it kicks against it. This is uncomfortable. This is not what I wanted. But you're going to accomplish my purpose, ox, and so get moving. So this goad that God is using in Paul's life was the message of the Christians. Jesus is raised from the dead. Because he's raised from the dead, that proves he's the Messiah. We saw him. We know he's raised, and Paul is just flying off the handle. I don't like that, and he's kicking against the goads. It was a personal thing. The message of, of Peter and John in the temple, the message of the Christians, that was one of the goads. When that's kicking in, even maybe unconsciously, the goad of the law that he knew, the scriptures that he knew might have been there, might have been reminding him, oh yeah, but the Bible teaches this, and I know that, and that one's always bugged me and I'm not really comfortable with it. So God can use the law that way. Here's, here's how Paul will later, or earlier, at some point describe the function of the law, the Mosaic law. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, he says, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? We, hey, promises of God, promises of the fathers, right? We had that. Is the law contrary to that? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everybody under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we'd been held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith could be revealed. So then, the law is our guardian until Christ comes, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So here's the function of the law. Here's the purpose of the law. The law was there to tell him you need to be saved. It was a goad. It was a burden. It was something that was pushing and saying, you can't do this. You can't make it. And it was placed on them to keep them in line until the coming of faith. Now, when Jesus comes, that goad is no longer serving a purpose. They are now in faith. The, the law has led them to that place where they go, we can't do it on our own. We're trusting in Jesus. That's a goad. That's a scriptural goad that he might use. So there are, there are personal goads, hearing these messages, understanding these things, maybe even the torment of knowing himself going, yeah, you know, I'm a Pharisee, I'm the strictest, we are the most clean and pure, and yet still, I know what my heart's like. I know what my, what my thought, where my thoughts go when I'm alone and for too long. I, I, I know what happens. And so there's that personal goad as well. So these are goads would be then um, there for Paul to come to Christ. And so Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against them goads. It is hard for you to kick against them. It hurts, and it's supposed to hurt. So why are you persecuting me? That was a goad. Those things that you're, that you're so mad about, those were supposed to lead you to me. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? He has no idea who's talking to him. Or if he does, he can't admit it yet. There's another goad. You need to come to Jesus. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant as an, and as a witness to the things which you have seen me. Uh, I'm sorry, I, every single time, every, I practiced this throughout the week and I screwed it up. It's, it's a difficult turn of phrase. Um, there, I have an excuse. Uh, get away with it. Um, to appoint you as a service, servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. So he says, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. The goad has worked. It's led you to me. Now I can remove the goad, but I want you to understand what your function is. What, what, hoe, or what row are you you're, uh, tilling here? Which yoke are you in? This is what's going to happen. You're going to be a witness to those things in which you have seen me. In which you have seen me. Paul, you're going to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you have been opposed to. You will be a witness to me in that. You will be able to go and tell people, I was on the road to Damascus. Wow, that's kind of happening right now, isn't it? I was on the road to Damascus and this light shone and Jesus appeared to me. The things in which you have seen me and the things in which I will appear to you. What a promise to have at that moment of conversion. He sees the risen Christ and he says, okay, and I will appear to you. And he will show up again. He will appear to him again. And that's exactly what happened is he met him on the road to Damascus. And then, um, <coughs> sorry, do this in chronological order. After his conversion, it's entirely possible. It's, it's, in my opinion, it's probable that he met Jesus again. And it's not recorded in Acts for us. And here's where I get it is from Galatians chapter 1, Paul is talking about his conversion story there, and he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached to me is not a man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So how did Paul know the ins and outs of the gospel? Because Jesus himself gave it to him. When? How? For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of our fathers. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained some 15 days. So it's possible that in that time, after his conversion, Paul spent some time in Damascus. Then he goes out to Arabia. He goes out into the desert, and he spends some time there. That's when it's, he says here, Jesus revealed his gospel to me. So apparently Jesus appeared to him at that point. Then the next one we saw was from Acts uh, chapter 18. He's in Corinth, remember? And there's a big opposition at Corinth. And in the night, Jesus comes and stands next to him and says, I have many people in this city. Don't be afraid. Jesus appeared to him again. And then at the beginning of this episode, right? You remember what happened? He was arrested in the temple. He spent the night in the barracks. And Jesus comes to him in the, in the barracks and says, don't be afraid. You're gonna, as you have testified before the people in Jerusalem about me, you're going to do the same thing in Rome. So Jesus fulfilled that promise. He appeared to him over and over again. So right from his conversion, I wish I had that experience. That would be so great to say, Jesus appeared to me when I was converted, and he promised me he would show up again and again and again, and he did. Does, does that make our faith inferior or broken or anything? No. It's, we haven't seen him, and yet we love him. That's praise. That's, that's held up as that is more miraculous than having seen him and loved him. That, that's something more of a gift. So here's where he goes with it. He says, these reasons that I'm going to appear to you for this purpose, I'm going to deliver you from your people and from the Gentiles. So you're going to, no matter what happens, whoever you talk to, there's going to be opposition from your people, Paul, and from the Gentiles. So this is where I said, somebody's on trial and it ain't Paul. Who, is, who composes the Jews and the Gentiles? The whole world. What Paul is doing right now is he's indicting the entire world. The world is about to go on trial. So here's what happens. Jesus says, I'm going to uh, deliver you from, the, from the, um, your, the Jews and from the Gentiles. I'm missing a page. Oh, there it is. Um, to whom I'm sending you. He's sending him to the Jews and the Gentiles. What's he supposed to do? He's supposed to open their eyes. That's why Paul is sent. 
They, he's going to open their eyes so that, A, they may turn from darkness to light. B, so that they can turn from the power of Satan to God and see that they may receive forgiveness. And D, a place among those who are sanctified. So now, when I read that, I thought, well, he's speaking of the, Jew, the Gentiles here, right? The Gentiles need that. The Gentiles worship demons. They need to be delivered from darkness to light. The, the Gentiles worship, you know, these false idols. They need it. They're under the power of Satan. They need to be delivered from that. But, he's, but what Jesus said in context was, I'm going to send you to your people and to the Gentiles, and this is what you're going to do. Now, to prove that, I'll, I'll prove that this is for both Jew and Gentile here in a moment because we'll look at the next verse. So how on earth is it? I mean, we can... We can get the Gentiles, right? We understand the Gentiles, the pagans. They're worshiping idols. Um, the, the temple practices were uh, horrible. I mean, just horrible. Sex was a regular portion of it. Um, it was just, a, the, the temple stuff was just a nightmare. So, of course, the Gentiles need to turn from darkness to light. Of course, that their gods were, were false gods. They were demons. They needed to, to um, turn from Satan to God. Um, they needed to receive forgiveness of sins. They were called sinners. The Jews looked on the Gentiles and called them sinners, Gentile sinners. Of course they needed to be forgiven. And they had no place, absolutely zero place among those who are sanctified, who are holy to God. A Gentile? Really? No way. So we can look at the Gentiles and say, yeah, that's absolutely true. That, that's entirely possible. But how could the Jews be in that category? How is it possible that the Jews were in darkness? Well, read the Gospels. They are told that they're in darkness quite often. Jesus, as a matter of fact, he heals a man born blind, and the Jews have a conniption fit. Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? And he says, if you could see, then you would have no sin. If you could see, you would have come to me and been forgiven. But you don't see. You're in darkness. You're in blindness. You don't have a clue. And these are the Jews, by the way, who knew the scriptures. These were the leaders. And even those people he looks at and he says, if you could see, if only you would open your eyes and see. So those Jews, even though they had the full law, they had the, the oracles of God, they had history, they had the festivals structured their, their lives, their food was meticulously managed by God, and they were still in darkness. They were under the power of Satan. The Jews Faithful Jews, in-covenant Jews, Jews who were, who were worshiping at temple were under the power of Satan. And, and this caused me to stumble this week. I went, wait a minute, this can't be right. And then I was reminded, what happened when they came to Jesus and they said, well, you know, um, we want to understand you better, these Jews who believed in him. He said, you're not doing what your father, don't tell me your father is Abraham. If you did, if your father was Abraham, you'd do what Abraham is doing which is trusting in me. No, you're of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. These are not just Jews. These are Jews who said they believed in him. And he tells them they're children of Satan. John the Baptist, when he comes out in the, the Jordan River to baptize people, he looks at folks and he says, don't you dare come to me and say, we have Abraham as our father. I'm here to tell you God could raise children from uh, these rocks to Abraham. By the way, he did. That's why we're here. It's because he raised children to Abraham from the rocks. So he's looking at these folks, and he's, they're telling them, even though they are Jews, even though they are God's chosen people, they are under the power of Satan. They need to receive forgiveness. What did Jesus do when he healed people? He said this repeatedly. Somebody would come to him with an infirmity. He'd lay his hands on them. He'd, he'd uh, make mud and rub it in their eyes, whatever it was. He goes, your sins are forgiven you. Go in peace. The, the friends lower their friend through the ceiling because they can't get to Jesus to get this poor paralytic man healed. And Jesus looks at him and goes, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees have a connection. What do you mean? You can't forgive sins. He says, which is easier to say? You're healed or your sins are forgiven? Take your choice. They're both the same thing. So the Jews needed to have their sins forgiven. This is why so many found offense at that. They needed a place among those who were sanctified. What? We are sanctified. We have the temple. We have the high priest. We have the holy scriptures that nobody else has. Of course we're sanctified. They couldn't have been less sanctified because when Jesus came, they killed him. 
So the Gentiles need to be saved. The Jews need to be saved. This is important for both of them. This is the hope he has in the, in the fathers. This is the hope that he has um, in the promise of the fathers. This is the hope that he's been, he's been accused of. And the people still don't like it. It's still offensive. Part of it, the offense is you're going to go tell the Gentiles that. But, but consider this. They get mad because he says, I'm going to the Gentiles with this message. You can't go to the Gentiles. Okay, you guys, you need to repent. You need to be saved. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. Well, kill him. He can't tell us that. We're Jews. There was no way out of this. There was only one way this message was going to be received, and that was poorly. So Paul presses on. He continues on, and he says that... Um, he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. Now, this is where I'm going to say he's going to, he's going to fulfill that. Um, he's going to show us that it wasn't just to the Gentiles. This is where it comes true. This is where it's obvious that it included the Jews. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. When Jesus told me to go do this, I didn't, buck, I didn't stop. I didn't turn away. I went and did it. What did I do? I declared first to those who were in Damascus, hey, that's where I was. That's who I should be talking to. So I declared to those who are in Damascus, well, that's a bunch of Gentiles, right? Yeah, mixed. That they should repent. Um, um, I first declared to, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Declared to those who were in Damascus, then in Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem with this message, and then to all the region of Judea, and I proclaimed this message, and then I went to the Gentiles. So that message that he's been saying, this is what proves, I think, that it is indeed for Jew and Gentile. Now, I bring that up because one of the commentaries said, well, at this point, this is Paul's message to the, Gentile, to the Gentiles. I don't think so. This is just Paul's message to everybody. And this is why people got mad at him. So then he went to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance is, I have changed my mind. I have turned in a new direction. It is not, golly, I feel bad about what I did last week. We, can, we all feel bad about what we did last week, and then we do it again next week. That's not repentance. Repentance isn't feeling bad. Repentance is, I recognize the evil of what I have done, and Lord, I am turning my head. I'm turning in a different direction. I am going in a new way. That's why he says, you have to have repentance, and you have to have deeds in keeping with repentance. You need to change your ways. That was what he was preaching. That was his message. For this reason, the Jews seized me in, in uh, the temple and tried to kill me because I had been offending them by telling them they're sinners, they need to be saved, and because I had offended them because I was going to Gentiles and saying Gentiles are sinners who need to be saved. Paul's mission was to both, and therefore I stand on trial. Uh, because they tried to kill me. To this day, I have the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both to great and small, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would said would come to pass. Paul, again, is not stepping out of the Jewish tradition here. He's saying, this is not something brand new. I'm doing exactly what Moses and the prophets, shorthand term for the Old Testament. I'm doing what the Bible has said. That's all I've got to say is that Jew and Gentile both need to be saved, and God will save both of them. So Paul's mission is to both. And, and so Paul puts the whole world on trial here, doesn't he? And here's what's going on, is, is when you look at what he said, you have on one hand the Jews with their religion and their ceremonies and their, their festivals and their feasts and their fasting and their tithing and all of these things, and it doesn't save them. And then on the other hand, you have the Gentiles, with their debauchery in their temples and their all kinds of weird things that they do and worship, and they worship meteorites for heaven's sake. And that religion won't save you. What that is, is religion won't save you. That's it. There, there's no religion that will save you. So when people say, how can you say that there's only one religion, one true religion, only one way to God? If they're thinking of external rites and ceremonies and dogmas, how can you say that out of all of them that are out there, there's only one that's right? Well, let me, say, let me do a little shortcut here. They're all wrong. They will all send you to hell. You don't need a religion. You don't need the external practice. You need 
to repent, to turn to Jesus Christ, and to trust in him. Now, to be fair, that's a dogma, and you know, I'm kind of cheating, but the, the, the idea that religion won't save you, I think that is the picture that Jesus paints for us in the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal means somebody who spends a lot of money. It doesn't mean a runaway. In our terms, I think we always think of runaway. But this is a parable of a prodigal son. One of the sons goes and just lives riotously and blows all his money. But there's two sons. There are two, two boys in this family, and both of them, at different points in the story, need to be reconciled to their father. So the youngest says, basically, he looks at his dad and, and in shorthand says, basically, dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. Give me my money. Just let me take my part, and I don't want anything to do with you. I'm just going to go on my own. So since you haven't gotten around to dying in my timeline, could I just have my stuff and leave? And his father, who is so generous and who loves his son so much, says, yes, here, take it. Sells off part of his property, sells off part of his flocks, says, here's your money. And this son goes off, and he does religion irreligiously. He just parties, man. He is just with prostitutes and buying you know, rounds at the bar and, and all of this stuff until he gets to the point where it's all spent and he's not satisfied. He's not happy. He's now feeding pigs and he looks and he goes, the hired servants that my father hired had it better than I do right now. My religion, my irreligion, my, my, my rebellion got me nowhere. I'm going back to dad. If he can take me on as a servant... I'll be in a better position than I am now. So he needed to be reconciled to his father. What happens when he comes home? Dad loves it. He throws a, a coat on him. He throws a ring on his finger. He kills the fatted cow. Let's have a party. My son is alive again. The other son comes in from the field. He's the one who's been loyal the whole time. Haven't I served you constantly? Haven't I always done everything you've asked? I have been super obedient. And you never even once gave me a, a, a cow or a, a small little goat to feed my friends. And now this son of yours, dad, I wish you were dead and I wish he was dead. This son of yours, I don't want anything to do with you anymore, comes home and you, and you kill the fatted cow. These are the two pictures of religion. What Jesus is saying is irreligion and religion won't save you. You need to be reconciled through the, to the father. You need a big brother who doesn't whine and complain. You need a big brother who goes and grabs you and says, let me take you to the Father and make it right. So when people complain about, does religion save? No, religion doesn't save in one sense. Jesus Christ saves. And, and once we're in that place, now we have rituals and we have ceremonies. We had an order of service this morning, don't we? It's not pure chaos where people just pop up and do things, and I'm going to go play this song now, and we get chopsticks for half an hour or something. We have an order of service. We have... Rites and ceremonies. We, we're going to do a baptism in the fall. Once a month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have those things. It's not, it's not that religion, Christianity is not religion. It's that religion will not save. So you could be a good and a faithful and an obedient Jew and go straight to hell if you haven't received Jesus Christ. You could be the most pagan, outlandish, left-field kind of person and go straight to hell because you haven't received Jesus Christ, not because you picked the wrong religion. Religion won't save. That's Paul's point, and that's what's gotten him into hot water with the Gentiles is I'm going, or with the uh, Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles with this message, the message that I've preached to you. It's that anybody can be saved, and they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want anything to do with that. So now what he says is, I'm not doing anything out of line with Moses and the prophets. There's nothing that I'm saying or doing that has not been predicted in the scriptures. This is what the scriptures have been saying all along. This is that moment when Paul, in his conversion, must have had his whole brain flip upside down. Because he knew all these scriptures, but he had yabbats to him. That's what I call it, yabbat. Well, that's what it says, yeah, but it means this. He had a ton of yabbats to his scriptures. And now he's met the risen Christ and all those yabbats fall away and it all kind of coalesces in his brain. So when he says, I'm doing only what the scriptures say, that the, what I've been saying is that uh, what Moses and the prophets say, that the Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and the Gentiles. That is from the Old Testament. Well, where? I, we could pick tons. We could do you know, a whole long Sunday school lesson on Christianity in the Old Testament. I just picked a handful. Isaiah 53, 
famous passage, the, the, the uh, punishment, the torment, the scourging, the crucifixion of Christ. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So even though he is opposed, even though he's beaten, even though he's afflicted and stricken and, and, and seen as, as hated by God, he personally shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death. He poured out his soul to death. He died, and yet he will divide the spoil with the many. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So that right there is Paul could pick that up and say, here's Christ in the Old Testament. All of those things in Isaiah 53 happened, and yet he will divide the spoil with the victors. He won. He rose from the dead. He made transgression, or he made um, atonement for transgressions. He, he took away their sins. He took care of that. And that's from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, we could find a ton of others. What about this idea that he would be killed, that he would be crushed? Right from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the fall has happened. God has gone into the garden and said, Adam, where are you? And Adam's hiding. Have you done what I told you not to do, Adam? Adam's response is, the woman that you gave me, she made me do it. Turns to the woman, what did you do? She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then he turns to the serpent and he curses the serpent. But in the middle of his curse, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. He will deal to you a death blow on the head and you will wound him. And that's the picture from the Garden of Eden. That's that promise to the fathers from that long ago. What about the inclusion of the Gentiles? Well, I mentioned earlier it's part of the Abrahamic covenant, right? The Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to the nations. Here's another clearer one, Zechariah chapter 2. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Many nations, many Gentiles, many goyim will join themselves to the Lord that day and will be my people. They will be my people. And then Isaiah, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations and my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You will bring my people back to me, but that's not enough. That would be too easy. You're going to bring my people back to me and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth and bring people back to me. Here's Moses and the prophets. Nothing, nothing new. Nothing outlandish. This is, the, this is the response. This is what God had been promising all along. <laughs> and so, Festus, Paul, you're out of your mind. You have lost your mind. It says in a loud voice, as, as Festus is sitting and listening and hearing all of this, he's like, you are insane. And, and have you ever heard an insane person talk? It's, it doesn't make much sense. I heard one person one time saying that, well, he had to deal with this. Uh, the, he got in trouble because he was using his mom's mailbox, but it was important because that mailbox was how the Vatican was communicating to control the rest of the world, so he had to, he had to get in the mailbox to do that. It, now, would you listen to this person and go, you have lost your mind. Um, that just doesn't make any kind of sense. The Vatican ain't in control of hardly the Vatican, if you look at it, let alone the whole world, and through your mom's mailbox? That is not the kind of insane Festus is saying here because what's the next thing he says? He doesn't say your great use of, your liberal use of, of wine has made you insane. He says your great learning. What Festus is saying is, Paul, there is a rationality to what you're saying and I can't comprehend it. it, is, it your great learning has made you nuts, man. There is a rationality to this message that you're, you're explaining to me and, and it seems insane to me. And look at it from Festus's point of view for a second, right? Here's a Roman governor. He is part of the Roman Empire. He is surrounded by Roman centurions, Roman uh, tetriarchs, or uh, uh, chiliarchs, rather. The, the, the trappings of all of Rome's power and authority. Rome rules the world at this point. There is nobody that can oppose them. And Rome is thoroughly and richly pagan. Multiple gods. And, and so what Festus is saying is he's looking at Paul and he goes, are you telling me that you're going to upend all of this? 
Are you telling me that we need to repent? Look at who we are. We're in charge. We're the powerful. And again, if that picture that we painted of the, the room that he's in is right, here's Paul standing there in chains, the prisoner. Like, I, I don't have to listen to you, but there's something compelling, something driving in his message that says it's rational and it makes sense. It can't be. The Roman Empire is never going to fail. It's never going to become Christian. You've got to be nuts. That was his message. That was his hope. And Festus then screams out that way. It, it's too much for him. You're out of your mind. But Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. He still respects him. He addresses him with the authority that he's due, most excellent Festus. I am not out of my mind, but you know for a fact that I am speaking true and rational words. Christianity is a rational religion. It makes sense. The pinnacle, the, pil the pillar in the middle that you have to get for it to make sense is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a historically documented event. Once you understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything else falls into place and it is rational. It is not yaya stuff. So when he tells, Paul, when he tells Festus, look, I am not insane. Listen to my words. They are rational words. They make sense. He then turns, as, as he's addressed the opposition, he turns back to the king. For the king knows these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice, for not one has been done in a corner. Agrippa, you have ruled over the northern tribes. You may not have been the king at the time that Jesus was executed, but it happened in your territory. He grew up in your territory. You can't not have heard of Jesus Christ. You can't not have heard of the stories. And so that's why he turns back to the king. He says, Agrippa, you know this is true. You're having to deal with some of the repercussions even now. You know this is right. It didn't happen in a corner. It wasn't a hidden little thing. Jesus preached publicly. He was executed publicly. So then he asked the question, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Why would he quote the prophets? Why would he ask if he believes the prophets? Because I think he just made his case. The prophets predicted that Jesus Christ would be executed, rise from again, and again from the grave, and he is the Messiah. King Agrippa, do you believe the, the prophets? Is this something that you know to be true? And then he says, I know you believe. Agrippa was, by all accounts, a very pious man. He, he was interested in Judaism. He may not have been terribly orthodox, but he was drawn to and, and he liked Judaism. He was drawn to it. There's even a, a possibility or a rumor that uh, uh, Bernice, his sister, was fairly religious at times too, usually only when she was in trouble. She would make sacrifices and vows when, she, when things didn't go her way. But that's why Paul can look at Agrippa and go, I know you believe this. And what I've just unpacked for you, Agrippa, is the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And you can tell that's where he's going. You can tell that's the thrust of it because Agrippa says, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. You keep this up and I'm going to become a Christian, Paul. He, this is why I say there's more that's, that's gone on in this discussion than what Luke has recorded for us. I think Paul brought out numerous scriptures to support his case. And that's why Agrippa right now is sitting at that edge. He's attracted to this. He knows he can't be an Orthodox Jew and be saved now. He, now he's like, well, this Jesus is really a problem. In a short time, you keep talking and I'm going to be a Christian. And Paul says, whether a short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He's talking to a room full of Jews and Gentiles. He is talking to prominent men of the city, military leaders, and a king. Isn't this exactly what Jesus told them he would do? You, you, you're going to go and you're going to carry my message to the Gentiles. You're going to speak before kings, before the powerful, before the rich. It's happened. The promise from the very beginning of the book of Acts has just come true. It, it's happened. Paul is now addressing the rich and the privileged, and he has appealed to them, not simply in an intellectual way, saying, um, this is true, and this is true, and this is true, therefore, you should believe. But in an emotional way, in, an, in, a, in a way he's invited them in, this has been my story, great King Agrippa. Won't you join me in it? I opposed Christianity. I tried to shut it down. 
But the risen Christ turned that all around. Won't you join me in this, King Agrippa? Isn't that more important than being right with Rome or anything? I want you to become as I am, except for these chains. This is something that Agrippa says, you're going to make me a Christian? The Christian now, it's not a term that comes up a whole bunch in the book of Acts. Where do they first call believers Christians? At Antioch. That's, that's up by his territory. So he's familiar with the term. He says, you're going to make me a Christian? And Paul says, I want you to be just like me. Paul's a Christian. And yet, Paul kept talking about his own religion, didn't he? He said, my religion. I'm doing what's exactly in line with the prophets. So is Christianity a new thing? It's not. It is picking up exactly where Judaism was leading, where it was supposed to take us. It, it resolves in this, this note called Christianity. The Christ is the one that's fulfilled it. So Paul's made his case. He's made a statement. I, I, my plea is, please become like I am, except for the chains. Be free, but be in Christ. So then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. So you can see the recessional. You know, hear the music playing and the horns blaring, and here they go marching out because they're very important people. And as they recede, they go into maybe a waiting room or something. When they'd withdrawn, they're chatting. What did we just see? This man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. They've been very impressed with, with Paul. This is not something that should be arrested. And you can hear the, the nattering back and forth. Did you remember? What did he mean by, and how does that fit? Wow, that's interesting, that Abraham and the nattering back and forth. And then Agrippa, the big guy in the room, this is when everybody be, 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 is uh, quiet when he speaks. He turns to Festus and he said, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. His guilt, it, it, again, his, his innocence is pronounced one more time and one more time and one more time. What we'll see next week as we begin to tear into 27 is um, that he is given a note and he's sent off to Rome. This is the downhill slide of the book. We're on the downhill uh, uh, trim of the book. We're heading toward the conclusion where Paul is sitting in Rome waiting to be heard. Um, but this was the pinnacle. This was the point. This is where all the theology came together. Um, we repeated a lot over the last three weeks, but it's because this is the most important part of the book. So what are we just supposed to do with this? What I've been saying is that Acts is supposed to be a book about disciples making disciples. What do we do as disciples? Is there anybody that we exclude from the gospel? Is there anybody we go, oh, they don't need the gospel? You know, that's just the nicest person. They're just, they're just, they don't, you know, they don't need the gospel really. They're, they're just nice people. I, I know a man I describe as the nicest guy I know, and he just needs Jesus. He's a good guy. He's a really nice person. But what Paul has done when he put the whole world on trial is he said, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither lawkeeper nor law violator, it gets off free here. You all need Jesus. You all need to be with, you all need to have Jesus. And so the other thing that I think of is uh, I've seen a few friends convert from evangelicalism to Roman Catholicism. And, um, you know, it's varying reasons. People are complicated. You can't boil it down and say this is one reason. But one of the things I think that draws evangelicals is the ancient nature of Roman Catholicism. Uh, they've got old practices, and they have words that we don't understand, and bells, and, and incense, and all kinds of things. And it feels very ancient and very distant. Well, what did Paul just tell us? Your faith, your religion, is rooted in the prophets. It beats Rome. It beats Roman bells and, and incense by thousands of years. We are rooted in an ancient religion, not something new that popped up yesterday. We have an ancient faith that's been proclaimed all along. And so for that, that's what we're called together. That's what we worship this, or do this morning as we worship. That's what we're called to live the rest of our life. So let's close in prayer. Father, we're grateful that you had goads for Paul that you didn't just release him and let him go his way, that, Lord, you put goads on him to prompt him, to draw him, to push him toward the faith in Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I thank you for the goads that you had in my life, the people who freaked me out because they were Christians, the, the nagging idea that there might be more. Um, Lord, I just pray for uh, more goads today. Lord, would you be... Um, 
pestering more people throughout our culture, throughout Lancaster and, and Palmdale? Would you draw many more people to yourself? And uh, Lord, as, as the, the goad works its purpose, may we be prepared to pronounce the gospel and, and tell them about our ancient faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, be glorified in all of this. Draw many people to yourself. Save a people unto yourself, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.